Law trumps politics. I'm Jessica Denson, and this is Lights On. One of the greatest cons Donald Trump still gets away with, even among his critics, is that he is a political outsider. When I came to my senses about who this man really is, it was one of the first things I recognized. In his decades of deceitful and manipulative business practices, Donald Trump lived and breathed everything we hate about politics. In his constant bid to stay relevant and avoid the legal and financial fate he was legitimately due, he was a textbook case of corrupt politicians. From cheating the system, to abusing his power for personal gain, to the bluster of how to overpromise and underdeliver, and most shamelessly, how to always get over on the little guy. Politics, the worst kind, is what Donald Trump knows and does best. But this week, his best politics failed. The ground shifted when the Colorado Supreme Court confirmed that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and ruled that he is disqualified from holding office under the 14th Amendment. The law trumped politics in a way that our democracy has been hungering and thirsting for, in a true victory for the people it serves. And yet, Donald Trump, his crooked allies, and sadly, many of those little guys that Trump still has conned into holding water for him claim that this beacon of constitutional order is, yes, you guessed it, political. Well, it is anything but political. What the four brave justices in Colorado affirmed was not a mere judicial opinion, but a constitutional demand an exercise of the safeguard to protect our nation from a tyrant who threatens to destroy it all. When I woke up from the con I believed in 2016, you better believe I only wished that there had been something to keep Trump out of the race back then, that the law had not been so slow to keep up with the corrupt politics of Donald Trump. Disqualification from office is not some political edge for Trump's opponents. It is the means for the very survival of our democracy and a legal protection for those very voters who are still being defrauded into believing for one second that Donald Trump will put the country's interests above his own. Politics got Donald Trump this far. Thank God we now have, well, thank God we have the law and the constitution to stop him now. Thank God we also have very brave men and women bringing these historical and necessary challenges in the courts. Among them, the extraordinary group Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington who represented the plaintiffs in Colorado. My guest today is the Chief Counsel and Vice President of CREW. He's making Donald great again. Donald Sherman, welcome back to Lights On. Such a pleasure to have you back. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I want to know, Donald, I mean, you you guys at Crew really brought us, brought this country an early Christmas present this year. Um, I, I kind of just want to know, what was your reaction on Tuesday when you first got the news? Well, uh, excuse me. Um, thanks for that. And, um, you know, to be honest with you, um, like, 
any working parent, I was making dinner for my for my family, <laughs> and um, and then just watching my phone. I knew the decision was coming. Got a couple of text messages. Um, I didn't want to trust the first one, so waited until uh, the second colleague uh, said that we had won, um, and then you know let out a sigh of relief, hugged my wife, and um, and then proceeded to do what we always do, which is get on the phone and talk about next steps. Um, you know, certainly we were thrilled, our clients were thrilled. Um, and, you know, this this case was really about them and Colorado uh, state law um, and their rights being vindicated. But yeah, um, you know, it was, uh, in many ways, it was just like any other Tuesday, except, you know, once we knew that a decision was coming, I had a, a lump in my throat and tried to distract myself with doing the things that any normal working parent would do. Um, I don't know that it succeeded, but, you know, was also glad to see that um, that the Colorado Supreme Court ruled in our client's favor, vindicating their rights as voters and vindicating the Constitution in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That must have been so special. I know that feeling when you're waiting for an opinion to come out and you it can either be like your your heart dropping to your stomach or it can just be total elation or somewhere in between. And, and um, that must have been so amazing for you. Um, I really want to delve into that opinion. Last time we had you on, of course, it was right after the district court ruled. They made that major factual finding that Donald Trump did, of course, engage in insurrection, but failed to um, account the presidency as an office. This kind of ridiculous reading of Section 3 um, that said that would exempt the very most important office of the presidency from this disqualification clause. And of course, uh, the Supreme Court in a 4-3 ruling overturned that aspect and did go ahead and disqualify Donald Trump. I really want to um, get into the weeds of this decision a little bit, but before I do, um, Donald, can you just tell me what stood out to you when you first read it? Sure. Uh, you know, I think the thing that stood out to me was there wasn't a lot of disagreement um, about whether Donald Trump had engaged in insurrection, even though there were three dissents. Two of them were on state law grounds, which is obviously uh, a sort of dead issue uh, looking ahead to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and then, you know, the the other dissent was, um, you know, sort of a, a mishmash of, of various arguments, but focus on process. Um, but really, um, no court that has reached the merits of this case or, you know, reviewed a robust record um, has reached the conclusion any other conclusion than that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Um, and so, you know, if, if there is a sort of second takeaway, it is that Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Uh, you know, it confirmed what we all saw uh, in the days leading up to and on January 6th, what Judge Wallace uh, ruled in her district court dis decision, despite um despite, uh, you know, finding that Section 3 didn't apply to the President of the United States or the Office of the Presidency. Um, but yeah, you know, having that confirmed uh, or uncontested by all of the uh, justices was especially uh, important in validating as more states wrestle with this question and as, um, and as the nation wrestle, wrestles with how do we move on from the January 6th attack on the Capitol? 
Yeah, when you read that opinion, um, it reiterates all of that um, very fleshed out case that you made in that five day trial as to why factually Donald Trump did engage in insurrection. Uh, one of the things they wrote in the opinion is, as our detailed recitation of the evidence shows, President Trump did not merely incite the insurrection. His actions constituted overt, voluntary, and direct participation in the insurrection. And in another part, they wrote he had the, quote, specific intent to engage in, quote, imminent lawless action. Um, when you really, you know, a lot of people are going to try to put their own spin, as I was alluding to in the open, on what this means. But when you look at the breadth of the illegality Donald Trump um, engaged in, in, in disregard of his oath to sub for our democracy, um, disqualification from office is the minimum uh, that we can that we can um, give in exchange for somebody like him. Um, I wanted to um, address uh, one of the things that they obviously were looking to the Supreme Court for where this goes next. And um, actually, before I get into a specific footnote or a specific note that they made on one of the justices, I just want to get your thoughts on um, the Supreme Court taking up this case and where it uh, and and how how they they rule on this, Donald. Well, because we won, uh, the ball is in the former president's. Uh, court and the Colorado Supreme Court has effectively given him a deadline of January fourth to um, to file for cert or the stay is lifted and the decision goes into effect. Um, so we are waiting um, and working and planning uh, for anticipated next steps. Um, but you know, as I said to you before. Section the the strongest arguments in support of Donald Trump's disqualification are mostly originalist arguments. Um, you know, most people that read the plain text of Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment reach the obvious conclusion uh, that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. January sixth was an insurrection, and that uh, he should be disqualified. This has been confirmed by you know the powerful piece written by Professors Bowden Paulson this summer, uh, followed by additional public commentary by uh, former Circuit Court, Court Judge uh, Michael Ludig and Professor Tribe, um, and you know it really just sort of easily understood by. Um, most of the folks that sort of read this and confirmed by the historical record as uh, evidenced by the testimony of Gerard Magliaca, who was an expert witness in our trial, and Mark Graber, who uh, was an expert witness in our trial in New Mexico last year, and, uh, and Amiki in this case. Um, you know, the experts that have studied this and studied Section 3 before January 6th you know, confirm that uh, the that both the text and the history of Section 3's ratification support uh, the finding that the Colorado Supreme Court reached, which is that January 6th was an insurrection and that Donald Trump engaged in it. Yeah, I really liked the way that these justices in Colorado opened um, this opinion. They said, quote, we do not reach these conclusions lightly. We are mindful of the magnitude and weight of the questions now before us. We are likewise mindful of our solemn duty to apply the law without fear or favor and without being swayed by public reaction to the decisions that the law 
mandates we reach. Um, I think that's such a powerful sentiment, a sentiment that um, must be on the minds of the Supreme Court justices when they most likely inevitably reach this case. Um, they really have to be absent from public opinion and apply the Constitution. And as you were saying, you know, I thought about that too as, as I was preparing for this talk with you today, Donald, is, is the conversations we had before. We started in the summer before you brought this case, um, just kind of really reviewing the conservative scholars who, who brought this to the forefront after you had um, initiated your work. Um, and then, as you mentioned, Judge Ludig, along with Professor Tribe, who we've also had on Lights On to share the merits of this case. I mean, this, this is a contextual, uh, I'm sorry, an originalist uh, reading of the Constitution um, that should be very much in line with conservative thinking, um, not to mention any legitimate and um, necessary reading of the Constitution. And and that's really what is is being demanded of, of the justices that will eventually see this case, isn't it, Donald? I think that's exactly right. I thought the uh, the majority in the Colorado Supreme Court also leaned quite heavily on uh, then Judge Gorsuch's opinion in the Hassan case, making right. clear that states have this authority and not just have this authority, but have a strong interest in exercising this authority to ensure that only eligible candidates, only constitutionally qualified candidates get on the ballot. Uh, you know, for better, or for worse, we have a constitution and we have courts for these hard questions. Um, and the Colorado Supreme Court wrestled with them and we believe reached the right conclusion. Um, and it's our expectation that the U.S. Supreme Court will wrestle with these questions and reach the, the right conclusion based on the facts and the law without fear or favor uh, and without consideration of the uh, you know uh, uh, of the sort of political element here, right? I, you know, again, we are only here because of Donald Trump and his actions, and so to Honestly. the extent that you know the uh, there are political ramifications for the former president or people who s support him, despite the fact that he engaged in insurrection, that is the price that we have to pay for having a constitution and for enforcing it even when it's difficult and for having the rule of law. And that those are the consequences that the former president has to pay for engaging in an insurrection, which we, the nation and the world watched in horror as it happened. Yeah, I often say, Donald on Lights On, that uh, Donald Trump is engaged in a cr criminal impunity plan where he um, you know, repeatedly tries to use politics to get out of legal accountability. Um, so it's it's not uh, you know political to save our democracy from his tyranny, um, his actions to avoid being accountable to the Constitution and the law are political. Um, Absolutely, and you know one, one thing that you know I think gets lost is ballot challenges happen in every state in every election yeah. all the time. They usually are adjudicated without much incident. It's not like the Hassan case got a lot of attention when it was brought because, you know, Hassan was some random guy running for president. Yeah. Um, but if we're to be a constitutional democracy, the law has to apply, whether it's some random guy who has no chance of winning um, or the front runner for a major political party, right? The constitution is the thing that is, uh, at least so far as I was told, is meant to make us equal in the eyes of the law. And so if that's the case, then 
Donald Trump needs to be treated the same way that anybody else would. Absolutely. And, and um, you brought up that Gorsuch reference that I wanted to highlight. Um, the justices, of course, name checking current Justice Gorsuch, who was previously a judge in Colorado when he ruled in the Hassan case. And he said, quote, it's a state's legitimate interest in protecting the integrity and practical functioning of the political process that, quote, permits it to exclude from the ballot candidates who are constitutionally prohibited from assuming office. So there you have, um, you know, Trump appointed ju Justice Gorsuch on the record, um, making the very case that uh, that that Section Three um, and any aspect of the Fourteenth Amendment um, must be enforced. There are a lot of ironies here. <laughs> that being one of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, gosh, so many questions I have for you, Donald, on, on how this plays out. Okay, so you mentioned that right now um, the the decision is stayed until January 4th. I think the next day, correct me if I'm wrong, is the deadline for the Colorado Sec Secretary of State to certify the primary ballot? That's correct. Okay, and then um, and then it will also be stayed indefinitely beyond that if and when Trump appeals, right? That's that's correct as well. Okay, so so let's just play this out for a minute. What happens um, if you know he? We obviously all expect him to appeal. Um, he gets put on the um, primary ballot. Um, does his name? Um, if if this decision is upheld by the Supreme Court, will his name then be able to be taken off the ballot in the interim from January 5th to, I think, June when Colorado holds its primary? Uh, well, the Colorado primary is actually March 5th. Oh, March. Um, I'm so sorry. So, you know, My calendar dates are off. <laughs> no, that's fine. Time is certainly a factor. And it's one yeah. of the reasons why, you know, we hope and expect that the court will hear, um, you know, if there is a cert petition and we expect there will be, uh, here's the case quickly and we are preparing to brief it qu quickly. Um, but yeah, if his name is sent. So the January 5th deadline is when the secretary has identified um, that she needs to send the names to the printer so that the ballots can be printed. Right. But um, but that doesn't, but there are also a couple of interim sort of benchmarks, um, including in February when people actually start voting. And so, you know, there's some time built in there such that even if Trump's name is on the ballot, that uh, voters will have notice of whether he is an eligible candidate or an ineligible candidate so that they can make an informed choice of only the qualified candidates um, as they cast their primary ballots. But there have also been instances where, um, and there's a, a state law and I think party procedure in place, if Trump's name is on the ballot and he's disqualified after that inflection point in, in mid-February. And so it really sort of depends on what happens and when, but uh, there are answers to that question depending on um, when uh, when a decision is rendered. And obviously, if the court rules against us, um, then you know the election will proceed uh, with and, and and you know with with great simplicity, I guess. 
Okay, I have a lot more questions about how this applies not only in Colorado, but other states. But sticking to Colorado for a minute, you mentioned the party rules. And I actually saw an article that said that the Colorado Republican Party is threatening not to um, honor the primary results if Donald Trump is removed from the ballot. And um, what I read at least says that they, they may have a legal leg to stand on here because it ultimately in the primary comes down to their party rules and they could switch to a caucus and just, um, you know, by delegate choose Donald Trump as their candidate, even if if he has not won what they charged candidates $40,000 to for to appear on the, the primary ballot. Um, so yeah, is, is that a possibility that that uh, the Republican Party in Colorado could could uh, choose him anyway? Yes. Um, I, admittedly, I'm not well steeped on their party rules. I think one of the things that um, one of the standards that was made clear in this process is while you know the party has an associational First Amendment right, they don't have the right to force the Secretary of State to put a disqualified candidate on the ballot. And so, you know, they can do what they want to do, and they can award their delegates how they want to award them, um, whether that's through a caucus or some other. Uh, process, you know, and, you know, whether that is to the detriment of uh, Colorado voters or to other uh, Republican primary candidates, I leave to others to to decide. Um, but yeah, they can choose how to award their delegates however they see fit. Um, and, you know, but ultimately, Trump's got to be on a ballot in order to become president. And so, like, they can make that choice but it may end up biting them in the end. Okay, I still have a lot more questions about how this technically plays out. If we can, I mean, kind of when the answer to that kind of leads me to, is there a scenario, Donald, where Donald Trump has, and I, I wanna get also back to SCOTUS and how that does or does not affect different states and possibly disparate opinions in different states, but. Is there a scenario where Donald Trump has remained on the ballot um, in Colorado or any other state, um, primary or general, and either gets elected as the party nominee or as the president, but there is a ruling from the Supreme Court saying that he's disqualified, then what happens? I mean, there's just so many unknowns to me. I mean, because obviously this these, these proceedings to keep him off the ballot are a logical deduction from section three, which has nothing to do with ballots. It's about holding office, Sure, but it's the logical deduction is, okay, if you can't hold office, then you can't be on the ballot. But, um, you know, could we, could we be in this crisis where he's actually either elected or on the ballot, but not qualified per a Supreme court ruling? So I think the practical answer to your question is if there is a Supreme court decision, whether it is um, before the primary or after, that um, finds that Donald Trump is disqualified from serving as president. Um, from a practical perspective, it's hard to imagine that um, he gets elected president, right? Um, and, you know, there are some state law questions that would uh, arise from that, but it's just hard to get to 270. Um, once the Supreme Court has said he's disqualified, um, and every state is different in terms of how they administer elections, but it's just it, like then it becomes sort of a math 
an uh, in, in electoral and a math question. Um, and it just, as, as I heard on uh, Twitter this week, sometimes the math doesn't math and the math won't math there. <laughs> the math won't math. Okay. <laughs> well, um, I am a lover of math. So um, <laughs> uh, let's, let's let math math. Um, all right. So going to, I mean, I'm really curious if this, if the justices do what is their duty, and I, I really want to, you know, maybe at the end of this, I'm going to let you give us one of your eloquent speeches about judicial <laughs> duty and, and what what's at stake here. But if the justices do their duty and they uphold in the Supreme Court, the uh, Colorado Supreme Court decision, um, because this case in Colorado was so centered on Colorado law, and I know Crew took so many, um, you know, so much care in choosing Colorado as the state to initially bring this challenge, is will it apply to all states? Granted that different states have different election laws. I mean, do you expect a press a nationwide precedent-setting decision out of the Supreme Court? So. Yes, I expect a nationwide precedented setting uh, decision on the Supreme Court, but it depends. Uh, but what, like how that manifests in each state depends on state law. So, for example, some state, uh, you know, every state has a different process for ballot challenges, right? Like this is not automatic. Some states give the Secretary of State unilateral authority to make these decisions. Some states don't. Some states require a um, a ballot challenge hearing where the decision maker is the Secretary of State. Some states like Colorado have sort of a hybrid uh, situation where uh, you know the Secretary of State can make certain decisions based on paperwork and then um, some decisions and but also might get sued uh, in court. Um, some states have at least uh, legal decisions that say that a voter cannot challenge ballot access. Um, and so, you know, regardless of what the Supreme Court says, if there's no cause of action to sue on, um, the challenge wouldn't work. And so really, again, this gets back to the sort of math issue. Uh, the court's holding will would apply um, but whether it gets to be applied depends on whether state law either affords the uh, a state official unilateral authority to make a decision in which they would consider what the court had said or gives voters or candidates or other candidates an opportunity to sue in court uh, where the um, you know, where the Supreme Court's decision would be binding. But if state law does not create a vehicle for challenge, then his placement on the ballot can't be challenged. Can it not be challenged by voters, but it could still rest in the authority of the Secretary of State to make that decision on their own? Sure. Okay. And again, you know, this is how our elections work. Um, but, you know, Article 2 gives states wide latitude to uh, to oversee and administer elections, and you know every system is different. This is why some cases have failed and some cases haven't. Uh, but the cases that have failed have never reached the merits, 
right? So as much as right. Trump has sort of beat his chest every time one of those cases has lost, none of them, you know, they mainly lost on state law grounds or procedural grounds, technicalities that don't allow a court to hear or get to the merits of whether Donald Trump is an insurrectionist. Now that's less of a problem because in a state where um, he was ably represented and there was a, you know, a week-long trial and lots of briefings, uh, not just one court, but two courts reached the sort of merits question of whether Donald Trump is an insurrectionist and both in, uh, concluded that he was. Yeah, absolutely. And as a reminder to our viewers, your case, um, correct me if I'm wrong, is the only one that has reached the merits, the only uh, Section 3 challenge that has reached the merits of whether Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. That's right. Cruz only brought two Section 3 cases, a yeah. case in New Mexico where we successfully removed Coy Griffin from office on behalf of three New Mexico voters last year, and this case on behalf of six Republican and unaffiliated voters, along with our co-counsel, um, that, again, successfully blocked uh, former President Trump from the ballot. Um, you know, there are other cases that are uh, that have happened that are happening, and uh, most of them have, you know, met with procedural or state law hurdles. Um, but, you know, this is, you know, as you said, one of the reasons why we are especially thoughtful about when and where uh, and how to sue. And, um, and you know, our plaintiffs were able and willing to step up and, you know, and really be the face and voice of this litigation. Um, and, you know, we're so grateful to them. I, I imagine a lot of people are. I want to talk about those plaintiffs for a minute because um, I think getting to know who the plaintiffs are is key to understanding um, the merits of this case, why this case is not political. Um, one of the plaintiffs, um, I, I want to name them all, um, is Norma Anderson the former Republican majority leader of the Colorado Senate and House. You also have Krista Koffer, a conservative columnist for the Denver Post. Cla Claudine Schneider Camerata, I may be saying that wrong, a former no, right. Repu okay, Republican U.S. representative. Kathy Wright, Michelle Priola, and Christopher Castilian. These are six Republican and non-affiliated voters, not a single Democrat in this bunch. Um, I, I think they deserve enormous credit for having the bravery um, and, um, you know, the integrity to bring forth this challenge. Um, and maybe you can just, just speak a little bit about, uh, about your plaintiffs. I mean, honestly, I can't say enough about them. Um, you know, it's humbling uh, to have the opportunity to represent them. Um, as Norma uh, likes to joke, she's been a Republican for longer than most of her lawyers has been alive. Um, you know, Krista Kafer is someone who voted for Donald Trump, not just in 2016, but in 2020. Um, and after January 6th, reached the conclusion that he um, had disqualified himself from office. Claudine Schneider was a, a Republican member of Congress for a decade. Um, you know, each one of our plaintiffs, um, you know, decided to be a part of this litigation because they believed quite strongly, one, in the rule of law, and two, in the fundamental unfairness of putting a disqualified candidate like Donald Trump on a Republican primary ballot. Um, you know, as much as there is, you know, sort of criticism uh, or an attempt to smear this litigation as partisan, um, you know, their Republican bona fides are unassailable. 
And, um, you know, again, it's just, it's an honor to know them. Um, And it's also just quite frustrating how many regular people have to risk so much because Donald Trump refuses to follow the Constitution. Um, and you know we, we've seen that you know in the in the litigation uh, against you know brought by uh, Shane Ross and uh, uh, Ruby Freeman. Really? Just so many people have risked so much, um, and I'm so grateful to our plaintiffs and you know and uh, and to the others who have stood in the breach to protect our democracy. And you know to the extent that you're talking about sort of judicial fortitude, this is not about me or you know, our legal team. This is about them, right? Um, these judges in, in Colorado stood up to vindicate these plaintiffs' rights. Um, yes. And that's what's at stake here. Um, and nothing less than our, our democracy. Yeah. Yeah, well, Donald, as a, as a plaintiff myself and someone who's been standing in that breach, um, in my own cases against Donald Trump, I, I know the sacrifice is great. I also know that it is absolutely 100% worth it and rewarding. And I can't imagine my life if I hadn't have done what I've done. I, I believe it. And, you know, they, you know, people like to say that democracy is work. Well, this is the work. This is the work. Um, and again, it shouldn't be this way. Um, but it is uh, because of Donald Trump's actions and, you know, I, I I think I said this on the the last time we spoke. Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment was built for this moment, and really, what this litigation has been about, and what you know, what this what is going to play out is going to be about, is whether we are built for this moment. Absolutely, and and you know that that reminds me of something Norma Anderson said in an interview I just heard. She said. Um, she said, I was concerned because of the courage of the courts. Um, and then she's, you know, when she spoke about what this decision means to her, she said, it means democracy. It tells me what our forefathers fought for when they settled this country. Um, here's an example of what the courts can do to uphold it when they do have courage. And I really want to also give so much credit to these justices. Of course, they just did their job as you, as you describe it. Um, They had the fortitude to Donald, Um, but they're also facing threats, increased threats as, as um, is common from Donald Trump and his, um, his, um, often violent army of supporters that he has amassed. He he riles them into um, violent rhetoric and at the worst times, violent actions. Um, and so we've seen increasing threats. There's been spreading of the addresses and phone numbers of these justices. Um, but, you know, when I see this, Donald, I really think, okay, we have to meet this moment. We can't we can't let any of this. And I, I know those, those justices in Colorado um, were obviously mindful of threats like this, and they made that that right decision anyway. Um, likewise, the justices of the Supreme Court, we cannot, if we're, if we're living by threats of violence, then we're just, you know, we're a banana republic. We, we, we can't stand for anything anymore. Yeah, I th- you know, I think that's right. It's, you know, um, e- either we are intimidated into, uh, doing Donald Trump's will, which is what he did on January 6th and the days before, or were too intimidated by uh, the threats 
um, that he and his supporters make to use a tool that was specifically designed to defend our democracy, right? And and so, you know, it's unfortunate that we are in this moment, <laughs> but, you know, a lot of a lot of people like to be the hero of their own story, um, but you know those six plaintiffs and you know the ones that you know successful or not that have put their names forward to see Section Three um, of the Fourteenth Amendment enforced against the former president, um, they are the ones that are prepared to do it and prepared to risk something to do it. Um, and you know I commend our plaintiffs and I commend all of them. Absolutely. Um, I want to get to um, an op-ed that you wrote with president of crew, Noah Bookbinder, who's also been a guest here on Lights On, um, about answering some of your critics and what they're getting sure. wrong. And um, I know that one the main, the main um, criticism is what I addressed in the open, which is this notion that this is a political decision or anti-democratic um, Let's just start there, Donald. As, as Judge Luttig, I think this week um, came on and said, I think the 14th Amendment in Section 3 is maybe one of the most pro-democracy amendments in our Constitution. Can you tell us why this is not anti-democratic? Well, sure, and for, for several reasons. One, Section 3 was specifically de designed as a defense mechanism to ensure that people don't use uh, violence or the threat of violence uh, or otherwise engage in rebellion against or insurrection against our founding document, right? We are a constitutional democracy. And the framers of Section 3 believe that that commitment was so important that if you violate that oath, you cannot serve in government again. You know, the Constitution has only a few qualifications or disqualifications for office. Found them, you find them in Article 2, uh, the ones that most people know, citizenship, residency, age. Uh, you find them in uh, the 22nd Amendment, saying that you can't be elected twice, and the disqualification clause. There are not that many limitations on who can become president uh, or who can hold office in America. But this one was so important because uh, it it is based on the fundamental principle that if you violate your oath and lead an attack against our democracy, you can no longer be party to serving in that democracy. The other thing that I think and uh, that I would say is people seem to forget uh, the context here. Um, Donald Trump's conduct was anti-democratic. He is the one who fomented a lie um, that the election was stolen from him, then recruited a mob and mobilized that mob to violently attack the seat of our democracy, all in the hopes of staying in power yeah. despite the votes of 80 plus million Americans to pick someone else. And he, part of that lie was specifically targeted on black voters and black votes in Detroit, um, as we're seeing uh, yes. yet again, um, in Georgia and other places. And so, you know, there's also a racial element here 
that is incredibly insidious. And so for Donald Trump or anyone else to suggest that using the Constitution to hold him accountable is anti-democratic, one, misses the entire point of Section 3, but also ignores the reality of how we got here in the first place. Absolutely, Donald. Um, We, you know, people say, let the voters decide. Well, we let the voters decide. And Donald Trump said, no, 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 voters, you can't have it your way. We've been there. We've done this. And as you mentioned, yesterday we had this bombshell report, um, more evidence piling on of Donald Trump's insurrection efforts with um, this report from Detroit News um, of the recording of that Wayne County canvassers meeting where Trump was pressuring Wayne County canvassers not to certify the 2020 vote. Um, Just flagrant, flagrant, as you mentioned, um, often race motivated efforts to disenfranchise voters and take away that choice. And the notion that we should um, give someone who has disqualified himself that opportunity again um, is is ridiculous. Donald, another kind of ridiculous, I think, uh, on the scale of ridiculousness, this one's pretty high. Uh, criticism that I've um, that I've come across is that um, this judicial opinion just is it relies on you know just old, old, old um, you know precedents and information, <laughs> like everything that you know. I read the opinion; it was so detailed. It went into uh, the congressional. Um, not 39th Congress and debates over whether they knew that Section 3 uh, defined the presidency as an office um, went back to debates from 1866. And some of the critics are saying, oh, this is relying on such old dated information I'm like our whole country i guess we should just throw everything out because uh we're you know we're this country's too old to uh rely on any kind of foundation that we've had thus far right yeah i mean i think it speaks to a couple of things one um donald trump is an outlier right we thankfully we haven't had to rely on section three because we haven't had insurrections against the constitution of the united states um that warranted this tool being used since the Reconstruction era. Uh, But again, the reason why we had to find that tool and dust it off for this moment is because of Donald Trump's actions. You know, I am grateful that it was there and that, you know, in the Reconstruction period, there were cases that were brought and people stood up and said, yeah, no, we're not going to have Confederates and insurrectionists in our government because there was a body of law that we could uh, look to. But also more fundamentally, you know, the Constitution doesn't have an expiration date. Exactly. I guess um, we should probably just stop Donald using Trump. the First Amendment, the Second Amendment. You know, they're just they're so old at this point. Right. Yeah. Right. You, you never hear uh, anybody, uh, you know, talking about how other constitutional provisions are, you know, just sort of inert from uh, not being used. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't think those arguments are especially serious. Not at all. And it's, and, and, you know, what's so um, not surprising, but uh, revealing is they they're coming from these so-called conservatives or defenders of Trump who so often are saying that liberals or the Democrats are trying to shred our constitution and the work of our founders. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so uh, make yeah. up your mind. <laughs> There's not a lot of consistency there. Not a lot, not a lot. Um, 
I speaking of conservatives, I know that you had a lot of um, support in this case in Colorado amicus briefs filed. Um, I know in the um, presidential immunity claim that Donald Trump is making in his criminal cases, um, conservatives have come together to file amicus briefs on on in support of Jack Smith um, as to why uh, Donald Trump does not have immunity from criminal liability. Do you expect to have um, conservative support once again when this reaches the Supreme Court um, in amicus briefs? I certainly hope so. Um, I hasten or, you know, I, I hesitate to use the word expectation because I don't want to uh, say too much. But um, yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, um, there have been strong um, written pieces by noted conservatives uh, supporting uh, the conclusion that Donald Trump is disqualified under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And we expect that, um, you know, uh, their opinions haven't changed. Um, so um, I, you know, we would certainly be fortunate to have uh, the support of some of those thinkers and others um, making the conservative case for uh, the former president's disqualification. I hope so, too. And um, and I'll expect it for you from what I've seen publicly from, you know, these leading voices like Judge Luttig um, and obviously, you know, Bowden Paulson, who's who. With, along with you helped really jumpstart this this necessary conversation and action. Um, I I want to also address Donald this notion that um, that popularity and being disqualified are mutually exclusive. That because Donald Trump is so popular and the leading candidate, that we can't possibly apply this to him. But actually, because of his popularity, it's even more necessary, isn't it? Well, I would say this. The Constitution has to apply whether you're popular or not. Right. Um, and, you know, and this is why we have courts. This is why we have a Constitution. Um, you know, you look at some of the some seminal Supreme Court cases, for example, desegregation was not popular when Brown versus Board of Education was decided. But the Constitution had to abide. Right. And so the reason why we have a constitution is because some issues, some questions are foundational, are so fundamental that they were enshrined within our constitution. Certainly section three is one such issue uh, and one such provision. Um, and it applies whether it's uh, whether someone is popular or not. I imagine that, you know, Barack Obama is popular in a lot of quarters. Um, in this country, but he can't serve as president again because of the 22nd Amendment. Um, it's, you know, as simple as that. And so, you know, I think people sort of use the popularity trope to, um, you know, as a as an excuse, right, um, that the stakes are somehow too high or that Donald Trump is too special to, um, to have the Constitution apply to him. But that's been Donald Trump's MO since he became president, that he is above the law and that no law should apply to him because he happened to win an election one time. Um, and if we are a nation of laws, um, we have to and courts have to say absolutely not. The law applies whether you're some no-name candidate like Mr. Hassan, who uh, was not a natural born citizen, or if you're Donald Trump, 
who happens to be popular despite engaging in an insurrection on January 6th. Yeah, there's kind of two points I wanted to make there. One, Donald, is that, you know, I see this as, you know, the the Trump sycophants and defenders will try to frame this as an opposition to him and his voters. I actually see it as as a I've said this once before on Lights On, I supported Donald Trump in 2016. By the grace of God, I did not cast a vote for the man. But even as having been a supporter, I see this as a a salvation for people who still fall prey to him. Because whose rights are going to be violated at the end of the day when Donald Trump is violating his oath of office, God forbid he gets to take it again? Theirs his very own supporters that are being conned by him to this day. So it's really a protection for them in the same way, you know, that it's protecting them from having someone who our founders determined is too young and inexperienced from holding the office. It's a protection for all of us, not just those of us who are opposed to him because we know who he is. Also those who are still living in the darkness. But um, <laughs> on the subject of popularity, this this poll came out this week, YouGov poll, finding that actually a, lar- a significant majority, 54% of US adults support the Colorado Supreme Court ruling. Um, 84% of Democrats, even 48% um, of independents smaller percentage of Republicans, no surprise, but um, this is a this is something that has large support among the American public. I can't find many things that uh, 54% of Americans agree on. Yeah, I mean, look, it's important to remember that, you know, there was an uh, impeachment proceeding um, after January 6th. There was a bipartisan vote in the House and a bipartisan majority in the Senate um, that found that Donald Trump incited an insurrection. We all saw this happen. Right. It's not like, you know, there's some, you know, this happened under cover of darkness. We all watched in horror on our TV screens as uh, Donald Trump made his speech, sent his mob to the Capitol. And as they beat officers like Danny Hodges and Winston Panjan, who were witnesses in our case and um, and threatened the lives of Eric Congressman Eric Swalwell and Congressman Ken Buck, who were doing the people's business that day. So, you know. This happened in front of the world, um, and to ignore it, um, it's, and so it's not surprising that um, you know that people understand how and why Donald Trump is disqualified. Absolutely, um, Donald. Before I before I brought you on, I invited our viewers to ask any questions, and um, one of them was, uh, "How do we approach this subject matter when visiting relatives and friends during the holidays?" Um, I've tried to do my part to explain why this is not political and why this is really a salvation for um, every voter in this country and a protection. Um, Donald, can you maybe answer that question and, and kind of tie it in with, uh, with, um, I think it, go ahead, yeah, sorry. I think it, I think it, I think it depends, right? You know, I mean, Trump's lawyers tried to argue that, uh, well, January 6th wasn't an insurrection. It wasn't violent enough. It didn't, you know, not enough people died. You know, it didn't, um, uh, you know, it happened at the wrong place. I think for folks that, um, you know, just sort of deny that January 6th was what it was, um, you know, it may not be worth your time. Um, you know, I think for people that raise some of the other concerns that you mentioned, um, you know, I think it's fair to point out that, like, look, 
this is not something that anyone um, comes to lightly, but our constitution has to stand for something. Otherwise, we're not the democracy that we say we are. And just in the same way that, you know, Zendaya or President Obama or Lionel Messi cannot run for president again, neither can Donald Trump. Just because um, his actions have consequences doesn't mean that we need to feel guilty about that, right? In some ways, this is the best way, and this is certainly the way that the framers of Section 3 um, envisioned that we would prevent the kind of attack on our democracy that happened on January 6th from ever happening again. And if we give Trump a pass on this, it's not like the voters can save us. We did that in 2020, right? It's not like um, Congress or anybody else is going to save us, right? Like there have been multiple opportunities for us to, you know, for the voters and for Congress to be engaged in Donald Trump um, you know, by word or deed has managed to escape accountability um, through those mechanisms um, and did so in a very violent way on January 6th, despite the votes uh, to oust him from office. So if we want to protect our democracy, we should use the tools that our democracy has given us, like Section 3, to, to do so. Use it or lose it, Right. Yeah, um, I, I would echo what you said, Donald, about wading into those conversations with, uh, you know, a, a thought for self-care. You know, don't, don't, uh, I always, um, I, I kind of talk about this a lot on Lights On. I have these conversations when I see an opening and when I see that I can plant a seed, but I, um, I, I don't think it's, it's worth, um, risking your own mental health for a conversation that's not going to go anywhere. You know, let these people um, work out their own salvation, even if they're family members sometimes. And and uh, these these legal cases are doing more than uh, carrying their weight in, in shedding light for the public at large. Um, thank you so much, Donald. I really actually just wanted to leave us with a very short clip from um, someone who you worked for in, in a previous career to crew, the late, great uh, Elijah Cummings. I think what he said applied as you'll hear in 2019 and very much now in 2023-24. When we're dancing with the angels, the question will be asked, in 2019, what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? Yeah, I mean, I was humbled and honored to work for uh, Mr. Cummings. Um, and that is the question that I ask myself on a regular basis. Um, you know, he certainly had a formative impact on our life. Um, and, you know, I would just say that our democracy is up to us. Um, and I'm so grateful that, you know, our plaintiffs were willing to step forward um, and that, you know, these justices were willing to step forward. Um, you know, the case on the merits against Donald Trump is is strong, um, but you know, but it requires all of us to stand up to him, and especially people that took their own oath to defend the Constitution to do so. Um, if we're going to have a Constitution going forward, from your mouth 
to the Supreme Court of the United States, to the ears of those justices, Donald. Absolutely. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for your invaluable work. Um, please give my regards to Noah Bookbinder and Mario Nicholas. Um, I will. Your co-counsel in Colorado have also been guests. I, I'm so happy for all of you and happy for your plaintiffs. Um, you've done extraordinary work for this country. Thank you so much. Happy holidays to everyone watching. Thank you, Donald. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas. And thank you everybody so much for joining us this week on Lights On. Um, I just want to take a moment because um, I can't turn away. I, I am very deeply saddened by what is happening in the Middle East. Marked um, over 2,000 deaths in Gaza this week. The city of Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus Christ, um, has canceled traditional Christmas festivities in mourning and honor for all of the Palestinians killed in Gaza. Um, I hope we can think about um, all of the people suffering in the Middle East and around this world at Christmas, hold them in our hearts and pray for an end to this needless and, and sick suffering that is going on. Um, I really wish every each and every one of you a very Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays. Um, I hope that you experience as much love and light as possible right now um and uh you know share that light spread that light in every way that you can you have brought so much light to me as you know i always tell you um if you would like to continue supporting my fight we need it we are so grateful for it. You can do that at thejessicadenson.com slash donate, thejessicadenson.com slash donate. Also, you can always subscribe for free to my channel on YouTube at Jessica Denson. You'll see all of the lights on uh, episodes, the ones we do on Fridays, the ones throughout the week. Best place to find this content at Jessica Denson on YouTube. And um, also go to citizensforethics.org and check out the decision and support um, Crew's work if you can. They're doing, as you know, extraordinary work for our democracy. Okay, everybody, Merry Christmas. See you next week with my poetic offering. Much love to you all and let your light shine. <laughs>